0: Well, friends, let me ask you to take your uh, Bibles this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 10, Luke 10, the third gospel, and we're going to continue to think together what it means to grow together, our growing together theme. We've uh, been looking at some of the research that the Fuller Youth Institute has done on hundreds of churches that had been growing young and they actually published a book called Growing Young that mentioned some of these principles that they've discovered helps churches grow younger and deeper and more fully and our team here at Oakmont has decided to call this Growing Together because we need all ages to do that. The Fuller Youth Institute looked at young people ages 15 to 29 and they asked the question, what is it that we can do to love young adults, to nurture them, to retain them, to embrace them and involve them and connect them in our communities and in our, you know, the life of our churches in a more uh, significant and more uh, a deeper way. So they came up with six core principles of what churches are doing when they grow young and grow together. So we've already looked at three of them. We looked at this idea of keychain leadership. How do we pass on the reins of leadership to younger people and uh, empower them to lead in the life of our church. That was one week. Second week, we looked at this idea of how do we be a warm community? Because for young people, warm is the new cool. So how do we develop warmth? Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at this idea of empathy. How do we live into the skin and the world of young people ages 15 to 29 and truly understand where they're coming from and, and identify with what's happening in their life? This morning, we're going to look at the fourth, one of the, well, I'm calling it the fourth core principle. I can't remember if it was in that order in the book or not, but it's being good neighbors, being best neighbors. And so one of the great stories out of scripture is one of the parables that Jesus told. Many of our parables are found in one, two, or three of the gospels. The one on the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, this is the only place it's found. So follow along with me as I read And I want to pause along the way to point some things out about the story, okay? Verse 25 of Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, your version may say a lawyer or a teacher of the law, but this is an expert in the Jewish law, and let's understand this very carefully. This is a test. That's what it says. He stood up to test Jesus. Jesus. This wasn't a sincere type question that he's got on his heart or mind. He's looking to test Jesus and to figure out what's going on. All right, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus is a good teacher, so he doesn't give the answer. He asked a question back because he's trying to help that person think. He's trying to help this expert in the law think. So Jesus answers back, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And you know, it's really important for those of us who are reading scripture to understand how are we reading it? How do we interpret scripture? Because there's a lot of scripture and people can come at it from different angles. So Jesus is wanting to know, what angle do you come at it from? How do you read it? Verse 27, the man, the lawyer, the teacher of the law answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. That's a way of saying, love God with everything you've got. And this teacher of the law is quoting directly from Deuteronomy 6, 4. It's called the Shema. It's a Hebrew word for to hear. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love your God with everything you've got. Then the teacher or the expert of the law continues and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18. So this teacher of the law is combining love of God with love of others. We call it the great commandment. Verse 28, Jesus replies you have answered correctly do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. Now this is the expert in the law. He wanted to justify himself. You know, we all do things in life, and we're wanting to justify ourselves. We have attitudes. We have perspectives. We have behavior. We want to justify ourselves. This guy wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, for the Jewish person of that day, there's only one answer to that question, who is my neighbor? The correct answer is another Jewish person. In their worldview, in their mindset, if you're non-Jewish, you're not my neighbor. So this lawyer is kind of setting Jesus up a second time because he asked, who is my neighbor? And he knows the answer to the question, is another Jewish person? But Jesus doesn't tell the story in that way. Let's read it. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem Jerusalem. To Jericho. Now let me tell you about that road this man's on. It's a 15 mile road. It's gravel dirt, windy rocky 15 miles down. It's a 3600 feet descent and I know that's true because when we were in Israel and Jordan in 2014 we left the Dead Sea and made our way up to the top of Jerusalem and that bus was just like this going up. It is a 3,600 feet worth of climb. So this man is going literally down from Jerusalem. It's a windy, rocky, narrow road. It's also known to harbor a lot of bandits and robbers. So why, you know, you've got to ask yourself the question, why would he be walking by himself? That doesn't make sense, does it? Man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, <clears throat> and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, let me tell you a little something about this priest. This priest is one of 20,000 priests in Israel at the time, in 24 different divisions. So they serve twice a year for a week in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this priest is no fool. He understands the significance of if he stops and checks on this man who looks like he's dead. He understands the Jewish law. And he knows that if he touches the man and the man happens to be dead, then he is rendered to be ceremonially and ritually unclean for one week. Which means what? It knocks him out of his week of service in the temple. And he doesn't want to miss one of his two weeks out of the year. So he passes by on the other side. Now, let's put this in modern day terms. This guy is not a priest going down the road. He's a pastor. Ouch. That hurts. He's a minister. Of youth and college. Sorry, Amy. Of education and children. Sorry, Joshua. Where's Ben hiding back over there? A youth ministry intern. It doesn't look too good for, us, for those of us who are clergy folks, does it? We've passed by on the other side. Let's keep going. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side also. Now a Levite is a temple assistant. He's also like the priest from the tribe of Aaron. And he goes up and he, he's kind of assisting the priest. And, in, and, and see, he also understands that this is a place where sometimes people will pretend they're hurt and they're decoys and you go over and check on them and then the other robbers and bandits show up and beat you up. So he doesn't want to get too close either. You know who this guy is in 2019? He's a deacon. Raise your hand if you're an ordained deacon. Just go ahead and raise your I, I just want to see all of you who pass by on the other side. Thank you. Thank you so much. He's also an Emerge Band and Worship Leader. Raise your hand if you're a Emerge Band and Worship Leader. Raise raise them high. Okay, I just want to make sure we all know who's passing by on the other side as the temple assistants. Okay, If if you're a Sunday school teacher, I won't make you raise your hand, but you're in that category too. All right, verse 33. But a Samaritan. Now, as soon as Jesus uttered that word, the radar screen starts beeping and and the alarm goes real loud for the expert in the law because because Samaritans are not on the same level as, as the Jewish people and the Samaritan's not my neighbor. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, and I think this is so fascinating to me, he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He couldn't say, no, it wasn't the the priest, it wasn't the Levite, it was the Samaritan. All he could say was the one who had mercy on him. Could not even utter the name Samaritan. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, Thanks be to God. Well, several weeks ago, uh, Leslie and I, on a Friday, traveled to Winston-Salem, where our daughter Lauren and her family live. And we went up for the day to go to Grand Pals Day. Not Grandparents Day, but Grand Pals, P-A-L-S, because conceivably some of the children... You know, might not have a grandparent who's able to come. So it's grand pals day. And our granddaughter, Alice Gray, is in kindergarten this year. So the grandparents or grandpas are invited to come in and eat lunch with the grandchildren. So we leave about 7.30 on Friday morning. And we get up there in time to get in line for an 11.30 lunch. So we got to go to the lobby and they got all these tables set up and alphabetized, and you go and you find your grandchild's last name, and you find the table number where you're supposed to go and eat, and then you go into another place and you make a name tag, and then, like good kindergarten grandparents, we get in line, right? We get in line, and we're going down the hallway to uh, head to the cafeteria, where we're we're, going to wait, and they're going to bring the children in to us. So we're standing in the hallway there, uh, getting ready to walk down to the cafeteria and I look over on the wall and I want to show you, put on the screen what I saw. I saw a, a little picture on the wall there. It's got crayons, a crayon box, and it says, we could learn a lot from crayons. Some are sharp, some are pretty, some are dull, while others are bright. Some have weird names But they have all learned to live together in the same box. Isn't that pretty neat? You know, that's a good word for kindergartens, kids, and first through fifth graders who are in that elementary school. But it's not a bad word for you and me either. We're all like crayons. And we ought to learn how to live together in the same box. And we're living together in the same box, not only in this church and in our community, but there's seven billion of us who are living together in this same planet, this same earth uh, on which we live and breathe and, and work and sleep and rest and worship together. You know, the growing young research that the Fuller Youth Institute did found out that young people ages 15 to 29 really care a whole lot about living together in the same box and living together as best neighbors, good neighbors. Thank you for uh, putting that on the screen for me. And so, their research has discovered that there's some things that young people are looking for. If if they're going to be a part of a faith community like Oakmont, a church, then they're looking for certain characteristics of that church family. And they really get engaged and excited when churches have certain attitudes or behaviors or perspectives. So I want to kind of condense some of that research and integrate it into this parable that Jesus told about how to be a good and best neighbor. So let me put some things on the screen this morning that give us the fuller Youth Institute's perspective on what they found out about young people. Number one is that young people want to practice love, justice, and mercy to all neighbors, A-L-L, all neighbors, even those persons who are different from them. They want to be a part and live in Micah 6-8 that we just read in our scripture. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Young people of this age they, they want to do that justice and mercy to all neighbors. Now, one thing we got to realize about Jesus. If he were here with us in 2019, he would tell this parable in such a way as to zero in on our collective biases and prejudices. He, just like he zeroed in on the fact that he knew this Jewish lawyer would not like it if he named that the Samaritan was the best neighbor... If Jesus is telling the story today, he's going to zero in on some of our prejudice and some of our bias, and he's going to tell it in such a way that it's going to make us feel a little uncomfortable. So if Jesus is telling the story today, he might tell the story not of the good Protestant, but of the good Catholic. Or he might tell the story of the good Muslim, or the good Buddhist, or the good Hindu, He might tell the story of the good agnostic or the good atheist. If Jesus is telling the story, he might tell it of the good Mexican or the Honduran who crossed the border illegally. If Jesus is telling the story, he might tell it about the good homeless person whose socioeconomic and educational status is far different from ours. If Jesus is telling the story, depending on your perspective, he might tell the story of the good Republican congressman or the good Democratic congressman or the good Green Party candidate or the good independent, nonpartisan candidate. And depending on your perspective, if Jesus was here with us in 2019 and we're living here in Greenville, and we love the Pirate Nation, then he might tell the story of the good state graduate and fan. Or if you're living in Raleigh, he might tell the story of the good Carolina graduate and fan. Or if you're living in Chapel Hill, he might tell the good story of the good Duke graduate and fan. If you're living in Durham, maybe he's going to tell the story of the good Winston-Salem-Wake Forest graduate and fan. And you know, you know how it goes. It just keeps going on. You can be sure that Jesus is going to tell the story today to really pinch you a little bit and to make you feel uncomfortable and to zero in on your prejudice and your biases. He's going to name some of these categories or more that I haven't named just like he did With this expert in the law, he used the word Samaritan. And he knew the alarm bells would go off with that guy because those Samaritans are half-breeds. They don't even worship in Jerusalem. In our temple, they built their own temple. They intermarried with foreigners. They are no good. The alarm bells are going off. This expert in the law can't even utter the word, the name Samaritan. is the one who was the good neighbor. He disliked and hated that person so much. You know, Jesus backed that lawyer into a corner and understand clearly, if he's telling the parable today, he's going to back you into a corner too. He's going to make you really feel uncomfortable. He's going to get under your skin. And young people today want to be a part of a church that is not uncomfortable with all neighbors. A church that's willing to practice justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with others who are following Jesus They want to be a part of that type of church. I hope you do too. Okay, number two. Uh, Young people do not deny the problems of our culture, but they are attracted to churches that define themselves more by what they are for than by what they are against. They like churches that can have dialogue and conversations even amidst differences and disagreements. They are turned off by churches that constantly judge and condemn and critique in a negative fashion. They welcome conversations that are laced by mercy and grace, just like the one Jesus was trying to have with this lawyer. They are people who value holiness and doing things the right way, but they just want to leave the judgment to God. You know, about a year or more or so ago, I know our young people looked at this book. And our adults, one Wednesday night, uh, for about a month, looked at this book. It's Adam Adam Hamilton. He's a United Methodist minister, and he's written a book on half-truths. And he named about five or six half-truths that we often say as Christians that have some measure of truth about them, but they're really not Fully, completely biblical, and you don't find them necessarily in the Bible. And I remember one of the half truths that we looked at was the half truth that goes this way. And and you can fill in the blank, because I know you're going to know it. Love the sinner, but hate what? The sin. You know it. You've said it before, and I have too. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. And Adam Hamilton the United Methodist pastor points out correctly that you don't find that anywhere in the Bible, number one. And number two, he points out that that was not the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus, and this parable right here, names it, it nails it down beautifully. The Spirit of Jesus is not love the sinner and hate the sin, but love your neighbor as yourself. And that's part of the great commandment love God with everything you've got, love your neighbors, as you love yourself. And in that book, Adam Hamilton tells a story about, and this would have been over 20 years ago. It was in the midst of the impeachment proceedings of President Bill Clinton, following his inappropriate relationship with the White House intern. And Billy Graham, remember Billy Graham? Billy Graham and his daughter Gigi are with. Bill and Hillary Clinton at an event. And later on, they get in a, you know, a car, a limousine with the president and, and the first lady, and they're riding somewhere, and Gigi Graham, Billy Graham's daughter, is noticing how you know, supportive and encouraging and, and loving that Billy Graham, her dad, is being to Bill and Hillary Clinton. And of course, you know, we all know that Billy Graham tried to develop a reputation of being a president to all of being a pastor, rather, to presence of all political persuasions. So Gigi is watching her daddy being this loving, supportive presence to the Clintons. And later they get back where they're alone, and Gigi doesn't understand why her daddy's doing what he's doing, of being so nice to the Clintons, and especially to Bill, given his uh, behavior. And so she kind of pushes Billy Graham on that issue. And after a moment, Billy Graham turns to his daughter And he says, Gigi, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict, God's job is to judge, and our job is to love. That's the spirit of Jesus. That's the spirit that young people ages 15 to 29 and even beyond, I think, are hungry for of the understanding that the Holy Spirit does convict God, it will be the one one day who will judge us. But our job is to love. And young people love churches that define themselves more by what they're for than what they're against and to leave that judgment to God. All right, number three. Young people want to do more than talk. They want to focus on making their neighborhoods and worlds a better place, (coughs) excuse me, engaging in acts of service, compassion, mission, and social justice. You know, all of you were invited to take an assessment to kind of evaluate and gauge our church about how well we are growing young and growing together. And We did that over about a six-month period of time. We got a lot of responses, and I'll have to tell you, of all of the six areas that we have or we'll look at, the core principles of growing young, this was one area where we scored high. We scored high as a church family in terms of being best neighbors. And you know, I think it is appropriate that we celebrate some of the things we're doing as a congregation to be best neighbors. We're offering a medical clinic, a free medical clinic twice a month down at our branch's location. We do tutoring with elementary, middle school, high school kids two days a week, Monday and Tuesdays. Tuesday night, we offer a meal for people in our community. It started out reaching out to unsheltered homeless people. And now it's expanded and people can get, you know, a meal and food and sometimes they get showers or uh, other love and concern from people. We have a grief share ministry where people who've lost a loved one through death find support. We have Celebrate Recovery that helps people deal with hurts, habits and hang-ups, addiction type issues. We send money Uh, around the world to support missionaries. When we have a flood, tornado, hurricane in our neck of the woods or wherever, we send money and teams to minister. We have a group in our church that builds ramps one day a week for people who can't get out or into their homes because of some physical issue. We're doing, I mean, hey, let's take a moment and pat ourselves on the shoulder in a healthy way and celebrate the fact that we are doing things and being good neighbors to people who are around us. And young people are attracted to that. They don't want to just talk about it. They want to do it and engage in it. And I think we can celebrate that in the life of our church. All right, number four. When discussing challenging cultural issues, young people, this is 15 to 29, care as much about the process and journey for arriving at particular beliefs or positions and are not threatened by a diversity of beliefs. For young people, the mantra is, more conversation and less conclusions. Now, there are a lot of us in in this world that love to nail down conclusions and positions. We want to know, where do you stand? Where do we stand on X, Y, Z? And young people value the process. They value the dialogue. They value the conversation. That's what Jesus was trying to do with this lawyer. He had arrived at a conclusion on a particular position. And the position is, who is my neighbor? And his conclusion is, my neighbor is only somebody who is another fellow Jew. It's not anybody outside that circle of influence and involvement. Young people are welcoming of conversations. And you know, I just think that as a society as a whole, but certainly as a church family, we need to be more open to having hard conversations with each other. We've had some of those in the past. We're going to have more in the future. And we should be open to not feeling like we have to nail down everything. Young people don't have to have it all black and white. They're comfortable with some gray. They're comfortable with some mystery they're comfortable with some ambiguity and that doesn't mean that we say that there's certain that there are not certain essentials and basics of our christian faith but they're comfortable living in that ambiguity with conversations and i think we should be too all right number 5 the last one young people are generally comfortable embracing ethnic racial gender sexual orientation and socioeconomic Diversity. Now, I don't know how it is in your life, your background, but I have to confess to you that growing up, I didn't have a lot of diversity in my life. I I mean, across the board, I, I had very little diversity in my family experience and in people that I was with in school and in church and in my neighborhood. I grew up Baptist. And we didn't even hang out with the Methodists. Much less the Lutherans or the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians. Or the Pentecostal Holiness. Or the Quakers. I mean, I could just keep on going. I mean, we were Baptists and we were self-sufficient. We were all we needed, you know? It was high school before I can remember knowing somebody who was Catholic. It was high school before I realized I had three friends who were Mormon, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, and I didn't know anything about them. The only thing I'd heard about them is that they didn't drink uh, alcohol or uh, any caffeine, and they were really nice people. That's all I knew about them. I had three friends later in high school. I, I had one Jewish friend that I knew growing up. He was in the sixth grade. And then he moved away the next year. And I remember being so impressed with him because two or three afternoons a week, he went downtown Raleigh to the local synagogue to study biblical Hebrew so he could read his scripture in the original language. And I thought, wow, that's pretty neat. We Christians, we don't do stuff like that. We're not learning Koinonia Greek so we can read the New Testament in our original language. I had a lot of respect for it. So, I mean, I didn't know... I was in college or beyond, for I knew somebody who was of the Islamic faith, Muslim. I never knew a Buddhist or a Hindu person. Uh, I had one guy that was a year older than me. I was a junior, he was a senior, and we used to sit at the lunchroom table and argue religion because he said he was atheist, so I knew one atheist growing up. I had no religious diversity, socioeconomic diversity. I, I, I had very little socioeconomic diversity. Uh, I would say our family was, you know, a white, lower middle class family. We were not certainly filthy rich, we were not dirt poor, kind of in the middle, the lower part of the middle. I never knew a homeless person. I I, I was around people who were not brilliant, but they were, you know, un, not uneducated. Growing up, Uh, It was in college or beyond before I ever really knew someone who was gay or lesbian. I didn't even know anybody who was transgender at that time. No diversity in that area. And even women in the family system and the church system still had their place Certain things women could do, certain things women couldn't do. I I don't know how it was for you. I'm just just naming for me. I had very little diversity until I got into college and beyond. And there were a lot of things swirling in my world as I was growing up. I remember the first time I ever smelled marijuana pot in the boys' bathroom in ninth grade at Millbrook High School in Raleigh. You know, the next time I smelled it, (laughs) it was at Dowdy Ficklin Stadium at a football game when I was in college. And then I worked on the school newspaper, The Technician uh, at NC State, Amy, Joshua, and um, some guys who worked on the paper used to celebrate after the paper got produced in the student center there, and I could smell the scent. But you know, my world was pretty sterile. And there wasn't a lot of diversity. Here's what I want you to understand Jesus lived in a world of diversity. He swam in a sea of diversity. He hung out with women in public, he hung out with a Samaritan woman in public, according to John's Gospel which you didn't do. Jews didn't hang out with women in public and they didn't hang out with Samaritans. Jesus hung out with drunks and prostitutes. Jesus hung out with tax collectors who were despised and hated almost as bad as the Samaritans in the Jewish system. Jesus hung out with the religious elite of the day and with those who had no faith. He hung out with Roman centurion, military folks, I mean, Jesus' world was as diverse and varied, and he swam in that sea, and he loved them all. And what you and I need to get in touch with is that young people ages 15 to 29, all these things we're talking about up here, that's their world. That's the world they live in. It's the world they swim in. And it's no big deal for them to be connected to some of these different ethnic, racial Sexual, gender, socioeconomic diversity, no big deal. They, it's in their school. It's, it's in their communities, their neighborhoods. And Jesus swam in that sea. And young people are hungry for churches. that want to be best neighbors to all people, regardless of the religious or ethnic or racial, whatever, fill in the blank you want, diversity. Thanks for putting these things on the screen. You know, a family circus comic strip has a grandmother. She's talking to her four grandchildren, and she says to them, you can give without loving, but you can't love unless you give. I think that's true. You can give without loving, but you can't love unless you give. And our job, if we're going to be best neighbors, our job as followers of Jesus is to love. Our job is to give. Our job is to share. Our job is to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And our job is to understand that we are a whole lot like crayons. We live in the same box together with each other. And we need to understand that there are people in this world who are hungry and they are in need of justice and they are in need of mercy and they are hungry to walk with God. And if that's true, they're our neighbor. They're in the same box with us. And we're in the same box with them. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning, and we want to name and acknowledge that there's a part in all of us, deep within us, that harbors some bias, some prejudice, something there, Lord, that holds us back from being a good neighbor to a certain type of person. So we just pray you'd forgive us and overlook, Lord, that inadequate place in our lives and keep working with us keep pushing us keep zeroing in on those places where we don't act a whole lot like Jesus and replace it with the heart of your son a heart that had a lot of mercy and grace and love for others so Lord that's our prayer for ourselves individually and for each other as a church family and we pray it now in Jesus name amen